Tonight, the focus of our series is going to be on the New Testament canon. That's kind of what we're focusing on. So the question we're asking is, how did the canon develop? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we defined the canon as a list of what's in, the official list of books that are recognized or the ones that they believed were authoritative. Now, the test for canonicity is going to be, was it inspired? But we haven't talked about inspiration, so we kind of have to leave the test alone for a while and just talk about other questions I think are actually a little bit more common. Here's the books we've been going through, just in case you want to follow along. We've got some others that are about to, we're about to start, but if you want to camp out in these books, The Origin of the Bible and The Canon of Scripture uh, both heavily rely on the work of F.F. F. Bruce, but The Origin of the Bible, as I said, has probably got 12 different authors writing different essays. It's kind of an overview. It doesn't drill down too much in any one area. So what are we covering tonight? If I were to say, why should you even care what we're going to talk about the canon of the New Testament, here's kind of the things that I'm trying to cover. Maybe you've heard this. They didn't even have an accurate list of what books were in the canon until the 4th century. It's a common charge against Christianity. Or maybe you've heard this. The decisions regarding which books to include and which ones to exclude were politically motivated. Maybe you've heard it this way. The church tried to suppress the true Christianity in favor of Constantine's Christianity. That was a favorite charge around the time of the Da Vinci Code. The other Gospels reveal the things that the church tried to conceal. Question? Um, could there really be that many different versions of like the scrolls that there could be stuff that the church is concealing? Well, let me tell you what the focus would be here. The 27 books we have in the New Testament, there were other books, and we're going to look at a couple of them tonight, that could have been added in the New Testament. Or even just the list that we have in the New Testament, people say, well, they didn't actually have a list until the 4th century, so hundreds of years went by and they didn't really know what should be in the New Testament. That's the charge. And that's kind of what we're going to evaluate tonight. Is there any merit to that? I'm not going to try to go wild and try to cover the whole canon. Just cover those issues. Because I'm betting you've heard them before. Maybe you have the same questions. Maybe you've actually been taught some of these things. So that's kind of what we're covering. I'm going to give you the end first, so that if you fall asleep, you at least catch something at the beginning. How's that? Does that work? So here's the end first. Here's my observations about this. Most of the statements that you just saw on the screen are made by persons who have never really studied this very deeply. I said most. There are some scholars who would make some of those statements, and I think we should pay attention when they do what their basis is. But the vast majority of people who make these statements have never actually looked into it. It's just a way of dismissing the New Testament. It's kind of like, well, you know what? They didn't even know what books were supposed to be in for 350 years or so. I could just disregard the whole book. They've never really looked into what we're going to talk about tonight. Here's another observation I found that was very probative if we are going to marshal some evidence. The early heretics relied on the same books that were eventually part of the canon. So their identity... Of those books, that wasn't what was at issue. It was their interpretation. Interpretation was the issue, not identity. It seems like even the early heretics kind of were centered on the same books, not all of the same books. But they weren't seeking to bring in new ones, at least early on. I'm going to be talking about two of them tonight. 
Here's another thing that I found from my study of this. I think there's very good evidence that the canon was already established pretty much by the second century. So probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 to 150 years after the resurrection, the canon is fairly well established. That's my statement. You can evaluate it in a moment. Yeah. I think that's a really bold claim, especially since it's not consistent with the ancient authors that we have. Like Origen or Clement might say, it's these 25 books. And others will say, no, it's these 25 books, but the extra five or whatever are different than what Origen had. So like, there seems to be, and by the second century, there are 22 books or writings that seem to appear across the, the region, but not always in the same way. And there are communities that don't know about other things still. Good. I like that. That's fair. So I say the canon appears well-established, but I'm going to define what I think that means. I want to be clear that it, I don't believe it's complete, and I believe there's still some dispute. We're actually going to walk through what each person felt at, about the canon. But here's why I put that statement on the screen. We're going to very quickly see that most of the dispute is over books that most of us, frankly, don't read. Yeah. I would say also that more of my issue is with the idea of the canon being established because I think that's more of a contemporary analysis. It's, in other words, that's, that's something that we want to say, but I don't think that the early church really thought about it that way. I'm sure you'll bring this up later, but I... Okay. So. Fair comment. I'll reserve that to talk about as well. Finally, my fourth observation is that the books that were not accepted as part of the canon are often, and it really, I need to emphasize the word often, easy to disregard. You can often tell why this book should not be included. And I'll give some examples. Let me walk through how I got to these observations. So I'm kind of front-loading my thoughts first. And the reason I did that is because you're going to think I'm just putting up another recitation of a bunch of historical names, and we're going nowhere. So I want you to see where we're going first, okay? First, I think the canon begins to develop as a response to heresy. I just want to point that out because many people don't know that. Many people who have never studied it are kind of a little bit anxious that the canon takes a while to enunciate. And in our 21st century mindset, we think, well, there should have been a list. Why wasn't there a list? Why wasn't this so important? Because to them, there is already importance placed on these. In fact, last time we talked about this, I was already demonstrating that they started to consider certain writings as scriptures very early on. So it wasn't that they didn't think of them as scripture. We saw how they were using them in writings and referring to them authoritatively. But it didn't occur to them that there needed to be a list until the first heresy started appearing. Let me just show you two. First, I want to look at the heresy of Martian or Marcion or Marcion. There's a whole debate on the web just about how you say the guy's name depending on how you use your Greek pronunciation. Martian was devoted to Paul. He was not actually a disciple of Paul, but his father was a bishop in one of the churches, and he read Paul and, and came to the conclusion that Paul is the only disciple. <laughs> Paul is the only apostle. Paul is the only one who gets it. Everything else has been tainted. He became so focused on Paul that he ultimately loved the book of Galatians, this grace-only concept. He 
decided the Old Testament should just be disregarded. He went a little bit further and began to become a Gnostic, and we're going to pause a little later and talk about Gnosticism, but he actually taught that the God of the Old Testament was completely separate than the Father that Jesus talked about, a more superior God in the New Testament. Some of you might believe that too. Some of you might be Martianites and not even know it. I've gotten many questions over the years about the God of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. That was one of the questions we had even in this series. So maybe you're following Martian and not even realizing it. And he is one of the first people to actually sit down and say, I'm going to assemble all of the scriptures. But what he does, of course, is he starts to assemble them the way he wants them. He takes one gospel, the book of Luke, and he cuts it up. There's things in Luke he doesn't like. He doesn't like the virgin birth. That kind of flies in the face of his Gnosticism. He doesn't like John the Baptist. So he just starts kind of cutting and hacking and throwing things out. Like he has the Pauline epistles, but he throws out parts of Romans because they deal with the Old Testament. Anything he doesn't like just gets kind of thrown into the chopping block and thrown out. And he begins to teach using this collection that he's created. We know later the church starts to criticize this movement. It actually starts to realize that while we are saying that you can't do that, you can't just chop up the scriptures the way you want, we've actually never set them down officially to be able to explain why not. Now, I'm simplifying that. This happens over a 100 years. Tertullian writes a whole book against Martian. That's how we know what he thought, because we have what's left of his arguments. But the point is, the church is realizing maybe we need to actually oppose this with our own official list. It's just a thought that starts to percolate. Here's another one. Valentinus is writing about the same time. He is fully a Gnostic. And if you don't know what a Gnostic is, Gnosticism, because I don't want to go into a whole explanation of it, I'll give you a simple example. People who followed Gnosticism believed that the scriptures contained mystical and secret information, a gnosis, a knowledge that was secret that only could be revealed by certain deities. They believed that there were a whole order of deities and that we didn't actually know all of them. They also had a weird belief about the separation of the material and the physical from the spiritual. And you're going to see that many of the other Gospels we talk about tonight, they actually come out of Gnostic schools of thought. In either event, the reason I'm putting up Martian and Valentinus on the screen here is you can see that Valentinus, he wrote the Gospel of Truth. It was a commentary on the Scriptures. He has an interpretation that's rejected by the Orthodox Catholic Christianity. But the interesting thing about both of these, I'm not putting them up here just to tell you all the differences. The interesting thing is they seemed, especially Valentinus, to use the same scriptures that are going to eventually make their way into the New Testament early on. So the early heresies kind of focus on the same scriptures, just different interpretations. Yeah? I think it's important to note that Gnostic thinking, or its source, kind of Greek way of thinking, still appears today. I mean, the, the dualism between spirit and the physical is something that's still maintained, I think, even secretly most Christians don't realize that they think in this way. Like, on the one hand, it's like there's kind of a, a Gnostic think, way of thinking, but there are also ways of thinking that, ex- that did, in fact, accept that, or, or orthodox positions that did accept elements of, of that kind of that Greek influence. Um, also, there's, there's a really great debate as to whether or not 
the Gnostics came after, like later, second, third century, or whether they developed their own texts at the same time as these other scriptures. And when they discovered the Nag Hammadi library, it shifted the scholarly perspective to that they developed their scriptures about the same time as the others. There were people out there writing other gospels. Let me address one, a couple of the points you made. First, with Gnosticism, it's hard for us to trace what is truly Gnostic and what is influenced by Platonic thinking. Because there was mainstream Greek philosophers like Plato that influenced people like Justin Martyr and any of the other people that came from the Alexandrian school of Christianity because they were heavily influenced by the Greeks because Alexandria was a Greek center. And I think that the problem is, is we often attribute, because they're very similar, like Plato, you can't say, was a Gnostic, and yet Plato held the same kind of dualism. And so it did influence Christian thinking, and we often say, oh, that must be Gnostic. And it's like, well, not really, because we have church fathers who were heavily influenced by Plato, and I would say that to this day, like you point out, the dualism still affects us, and it's mostly Platonic. It's the idea even we have when we say we're going to heaven, and we're going to just sing, and it's going to be spiritual, and we're not going to have a resurrected body because we think spiritual good, body bad. It's the same kind of concept. It still influences us to this day. Something else you pointed out about whether the Gnostics were there first. I mean, it's true the Gnostics were developing their own scriptures. I don't think they were derivative all the time. Like, they didn't take the New Testament and say, let's change this all around. I would think that what's going on is that they are taking some of the same sayings of Jesus, but they're changing them. And they're changing them dramatically to fit their view of the world. And we're going to look at some tonight where you could see that there, there's some real changes going on here. I'm not pointing out these early heresies because Gnosticism really doesn't get going till, the, till later in the 2nd and 3rd century. But the early schools of thought, like even Valentinus, is beginning that kind of, he's one of the early influencers of Gnosticism. And again, I'm not trying to bring it up just to shoot it down. What I'm saying is the early heresies, it seems, focused on the books that we use for the New Testament. Not all of them, but actually there's a comment from Tertullian, who's a later bishop who's actually writing against these heresies, that Valentinus used most of the books in his arguments, but wasn't really adding any new ones. What he was adding that was new was this commentary, like the Gospel of Truth. He didn't write a separate gospel. It's not a new gospel. The Gospel of Truth is his commentary on the main books of the New Testament, trying to show why they should be read this way. So what I'm trying to point out is early on, everybody was fighting over the same turf, just trying to interpret what it meant. But the church started realizing that if people can take some of these things and cut this out or throw this out or say this isn't authoritative, maybe the reason they can do that is because we've never said what is authoritative. And that begins something which is going to take probably 200 years of trying to nail down exactly what's authoritative. Scholars go back and think, when was it final? I could tell you when it's actually final. If you want it in a council, it's not going to be written down until like 393 or 397. We're going to end there. But let me show you along the way what happened. Here's how the church got to that place. First, they started rebutting the Martianite prologues. What Martian had done in his gospel and apostle was he would actually annotate the beginning of the books with his own explanation of how they came to be written. The church, in early manuscripts and codices, started actually annotating kind of responses about the true nature of the book. 
I know this sounds like egghead stuff, but I got to tell you, the prologues are fascinating. I was reading some of them, and a lot of what we think about is just tradition is written down in the prologues about John's gospel, for example. One interesting thing I learned about John's gospel was that the early church fathers believed that John did not write it alone. He wrote it with other disciples. I don't know where I was, and I missed that somewhere in Sunday school. I know a lot of people these days, it's very popular to denigrate John's gospel, but actually they point out early on in these prologues that he actually wrote it and some of the other disciples helped to edit it and put it together and say, yes, we believe in this. That's at least put down in a prologue. It's part of the church tradition. Or there was a prologue that specifically talked about Luke and who Luke was and, and how he traveled with Paul and those kinds of things. That's good because we've always like said, oh, like Luke wrote this gospel and he's a doctor. And you think like, well, that doesn't say that anywhere in Luke, right? And we always said, oh, yeah, that's in the tradition. That's in the tradition, which is great because I thought the tradition, you know, sometimes is amorphous and you just hear things that's written by early church fathers. But to think that some of the early scriptures were actually annotated with this was kind of, kind of cool to read through. Now, I'll say that the prologues don't take the weight of scripture. And there were some things they said that I thought, nah, that's not right. And even the commentators who were writing by go, yeah, that, that wasn't right. You know, there was like one prologue that said that like John's work was done before Paul. Like, nah, that's not right. I mean, nobody believes that. Clearly erroneous dating. So they begin by rebutting some of the things that's going on in Martianism. Here's another thing we found. We found the Muratorian Fragment. It's also called the Muratorian Canon or List. Again, canon is a word that's developing. This is around 170 AD. And it's the first list that we have that lists the books of the New Testament where somebody's trying to say these are the books. All of the books are listed except 3 John, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, James. But it does add another book. The Book of Wisdom of Solomon is listed in that list of which books are authorized. But that's the first one that we find. We believe it's right around 170 because it mentions somebody in that fragment that we can say, all right, we can date that. I think it mentions Pius, so we can date it and say, here's the first list. So 170, we're now approximately 140 years after the resurrection. Church has begun. It's been going on for a while, but now there's a need. Remember, the early heresies we talked about, like Martian and Valentinus, they're about like 135, 140. That's when they're teaching. Irenaeus writes against heresies. He uses the same books in his list. Now, to be fair, let me be fair. Irenaeus doesn't actually make a list like the Moratorian Fragment. He actually cites authoritatively. We presume the list from what he claims is authoritative. And he uses authoritatively every book that's in the Moratorian Fragment but adds 1 Peter. So 1 Peter starts to make its appearance. Hippolytus, same. Same list of authoritative books that he cites. Now, by the way, these people are citing other books, but they cite these with authority, like the it is written language that we looked at the last time we spent time together. Here's Tertullian. He's the one that wrote that book against Martian. He's the first to actually refer to the New Testament corpus as a testament. He actually says of Valentinus that while Valentinus uses the entire testamentum, he misinterprets it. So there's evidence that they were even using kind of the same books. They thought the same books might be authoritative. They're just interpretation differs. 
he basically relies on everything except 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, and James. You see the kind of progression? The books that are at the end of the New Testament seem to be the ones that take the longest for us to admit into the canon. They're also, like I jokingly said earlier, the ones we read the least. That means that the Gospels have long been considered authoritative, all four. The Acts, the Pauline corpus of letters, and in many cases, Hebrews. Because in some churches, they actually thought that Hebrews was a Pauline letter. You mentioned Clement of Alexandria. So now we're about 200. He actually also relies on Hebrew, but like I said, he actually believed, as most of the fathers who were in Alexandria believed, that it was a Pauline letter, at least at the time. So it seems like there's the controversy. It's kind of focused on the same books. There doesn't seem to be any controversy as we close out the second century about the Gospels or about the Pauline letters or about Acts. And frankly, that's where we get most of our theology. Yes. And what about Revelation? Yes, I'm going to get to Revelation in a moment because it was accepted by some and accepted by others as accepted by all, and then it was rejected by some. It was a very confusing deal with what they called the Apocalypse of John. When I talk about the church, by the way, remember the church is developing on two distinct fronts. The Western church is developing in Rome, and they're eventually going to become kind of the Latin side of the church. Okay? The Eastern church is developing in other places. Right? It's the, the more Greek center of the church. Like later, it's going to move to Constantinople, right? But we have parts of it in Alexandria. So like, there's different traditions going up. And so you might have two church fathers, one in the East and one in the West, who looked at a book differently. But it would be like these books. So for example, somebody might say, I think Second Peter's out. So even when you go down these things, you have to think, oh, okay, we got to look like Tertullian. We have to think, yes. How did he view the book and why? Who was the person that mentored him and brought him up and what was their view of it as well? Jeremy? I think it's such a strong statement to say, well, there were so many heresies that they had to figure out what was right. A lot of these guys made those distinctions with additional texts which aren't included on these lists. And I almost see it more as like, well, there were heresies going about, so this was kind of a, a natural development, but not the only reason, and maybe a bad reason, to put this kind of definitive box around it, because that excluded stuff, which maybe, you know, maybe if this issue hadn't been going on, this issue of heresy hadn't been going on, there would have been other, other things, or at least in the Protestant church, we would have a better understanding of what tradition actually is, or we would have a better understanding of what non-canonical means. Okay, let me address the point about the other things they cited to. If you look at this list that I have on the screen, it is true that they referenced and cited other than the undisputed parts of the 27 books. And they did it for different reasons. Some thought, well, Paul cited to all sorts of things, right? So we should cite to things too. That happened especially in the Alexandrian school of thought that were also influenced by Plato. That, yeah, why not? Why shouldn't we? In fact, some of them would cite like, Plato and Christ in the same sentence because they thought, well, all truth is God's truth. They had that kind of view. And all that is good should be reclaimed for him. They had that view. 
And yes, sometimes they even cite it authoritatively. I don't know anybody who did that with Plato, for example. But there are other Gospels, and we're going to talk about in a moment, like even the Didache, which is the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. Some believe that those should be afforded authoritative weight like Scripture. Another one was the Epistle of Barnabas that was widely circulated, and some people thought that should be afforded some weight. Eventually, those get rejected. But we have to be clear when we look at them because a lot of times they were just citing things the way we would. I mean, we don't just cite Scripture as the only example of anything. And like I said, even Paul did that. Even Jesus did that. He would cite to other things. The question is, they cited authoritatively, and I have to say, in some cases, they did. Like even over here, if you go all the way back to the Moratorian Fragment, they believed that wisdom should be included in a list. We obviously didn't agree with that. We being, you know, the rest of history after that point forward. Yeah. But wasn't wisdom part of the Old Testament canon in the church until the 1500s? The discovery of this fragment reveals that the people who were writing about wisdom were unsure if it belonged to the Old Testament or the New Testament. There's questions about the dating of wisdom, and some people have said that it could be as late dated as like 40 or 50 AD. Now, that's probably the latest dating it could have. And there's actually description about the Book of Wisdom, and it talks about like how it was written in our time. They don't mean like as late as 170, but they mean like maybe in the apostolic age. So there was question about whether that should be included with the Old Testament Apocrypha or whether it should be included as a New Testament book. And eventually it's not included in the New Testament book. It is carried as the Apocrypha in some places. Yeah, it looks like they're grabbing a book from the Old Testament saying we want to include this, but it was because they didn't know when it was written. Let me press forward just a little bit more. When we get to Origen, now we're talking about 185 to 254 is when he lived. Many people have called Origen the great textual critic. There's a lot of things that Origen believes I won't go into. Some of them we reject. But there's no doubt that he was at least a scholar, almost unmatched in his time. He took textual criticism so seriously, he began to assemble what became known as the Hexapla, which was a six-column text that went through the Old Testament in numerous versions this was probably one of the greatest scholarly achievements for textual criticism because you could see all the, like in the original Hebrew and how it was in the Septuagint and different versions in between so that you could compare. And this was used as a study guide by many, many different people, especially in the creation of different translations. So what does this person who's obsessed with this level of detail and making sure we have correct translation and focusing on all the different versions to make sure that we have the closest we can get he actually made a list of what was undisputed and what was disputed. So according to Origen, and now we're headed into the third century, the four Gospels are undisputed, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, 1 Peter, 1 John, and there's Revelation. He considers it undisputed. What he considers disputed among the churches is Hebrews, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, James, and Jude. Then he puts down the other disputed books, which I was just talking about with Jeremy. The Didache, the Letter of Barnabas, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Gospel According to the Hebrews, and the Acts of Paul. And by the way, there's a list of them that goes on in a moment. You'll see there's many, many others. 
But these apparently were in such wide use that he felt like he needed to say these are disputed. Yeah. So there's one called Acts of Paul besides Acts? That's right. That's Origins list. And by the time that we hit the beginning of Christendom, you have Eusebius of Caesarea. He's the bishop in Palestine. And he becomes a pretty influential advisor when Constantine converts to Christianity and begins the conversion of the empire. He writes one of the most comprehensive histories of the church. So if Origen was the great textual critic, Eusebius is going to be the great historian who catalogs the beginning of the faith all the way up until its establishment by Constantine. And he gives us a list as well. What's acknowledged, he calls it? Four Gospels, Acts, the Pauline Epistles, 1 John, 1 Peter, and Revelation. Disputed, but recognized by a majority. So he clarifies what disputed means. Yes, there's dispute, but it's still recognized by the majority. James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John. And then he calls spurious, and by the way, probably not the same exact use we have. This is probably other disputed, similar category, but he calls ones that are spurious. The Acts of Paul, the shepherd with his shepherd Hermas, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of Barnabas, the teachings of the apostles, which is the Didache, and Revelation. One thing we do know about Eusebius is he did not like the book of Revelation. In his notes, he actually says, you should accept it if you accept it, <laughs> and it should be considered spurious to those if we could establish that. He was basically saying the jury's still out for me, but by putting it in the first list, he was saying it's been accepted. I just don't like it. His mentor didn't like it either. That's probably why he came from a school of thought that just didn't like the Apocalypse of John. Yeah. Is Hebrews considered a Pauline epistle by him? I think that he would think it was because he's in the East. For example, in the Western church, you could imagine, since it was centered in Rome, they weren't excited about Hebrews because it was written to the Hebrews. They don't really care that much about the book. It takes on much more import in the Eastern church. So there's some historical basis for some of these things. All right? All right. What does that give us? The only thing I could tell you it tells me, and it may be too strong of a statement, that no matter how you slice it or dice it, the four Gospels, Acts, and the Pauline Epistles don't appear to be at issue. There's never been an issue about those, it appears, at least in the church. So they decide they want to make it official. The first complete recording of the 27 books of the New Testament, in case you want the answer, is it true that it wasn't until the 4th century that we had a complete list? Yes, that would be true. In 367, Athanasius, who gets the official letter every year at Easter to the church, he puts down in his 39th festal letter the complete list. He actually says, this is the list. Later at the Council of Hippo in 393, that's confirmed, but we don't have any actually written notes from the Council of Hippo. The Council of Carthage in 397 confirms it, and actually we have a writing evidencing that. So that's the history of how we get the 27 books. But I still maintain that I think we should take great comfort in the fact that the books we rely on the most are not really an issue. All right, here are some other Gospels for you to look at. When you asked earlier, Brian, what other books I'm talking about, and you asked Randy, is there an Acts of Paul? Yes, there's actually all of these are just 
some of the other things that were written. I mean, you've got the Gospels of the Infancy, like the Arabic Gospel and the Armenian Gospel of the Infancy. You know, I've always joked that you never see Bartholomew do much in the Bible, right? I mean, he's just kind of a disciple. He's just hanging out as an extra. But you've got Bartholomew's Book of Resurrection, the Gospel of Bartholomew. You've got the Gospel of the Birth of Mary. You know, there's all these different ones on, on the screen just to show you. They go, there's the Gospel of Martian, Matthias, the Nazarenes. There's the Gospel of Peter and Philip, Pseudo-Matthew, Thomas. You've got then a whole bunch of acts, like the Acts of Andrew and Paul, the Acts of Barnabas. I was thinking of this like a comic book, you know, like when you just run out of Superman stories and you make like Superboy and Superwoman and like, like all these different things that you do. Like they just started making up acts of all these different people. Now, who was writing these? Most, most appear to be written in the 2nd and 3rd century. So they're later dated, and they appear to be written, many of them, by the Gnostic school of thought, but there are others. They were just people who were genuinely interested in this. Yeah? Was that list rather comprehensive, or no? There's actually probably another 10 or 15 that I was able to find other than these. There's probably like 40 on this list. And some of them you could read. I'll tell you where you can go read them. Some of them we know about because they were talked about in some of the refutations by early church fathers. Some of them we actually have text. Some of them we have fragments of. Some of them have been translated so you can read them. You can see them in the original language and you can also read them as well. So here's what I'd like to do, just to give you a flavor of some of these, if I could. Do you want to hear what's in some of these? Might be kind of interesting. I said one of the points of my observations was you can sometimes tell that this book shouldn't be included. Here's one. This is the infancy gospel of Thomas. These are stories that were trying to recover what happened to Jesus when he was a little kid. Because we don't have anything except that one story where he's at the temple and then he's, and he's all of a sudden he's getting baptized. But there were some things that happened when he was younger. Here's some. I mean, let me set up the backstory. It's raining. Jesus is making like a little pool, you know, like you do at the beach, you know. He's like holding the water in. And one of his friends comes by and lets the water out of the pool. So a certain boy, the son of Annas, a scribe, came past, and with a willow branch, which he was carrying, threw down the pools, and the water flowed out. And Jesus, turning, said, O impious and wicked, how have the pools wronged thee, that thou emptiest them? Thou shalt not go on the way, and thou shalt be dried up like the branch thou art carrying. And as he went along, in a short time, the boy fell down and died. And when the children there were playing and they saw this, they wondered. And they went away and they told the father of the dead boy. And he ran and found his dead child. And he went away and approached Joseph. So that was what Jesus did when he was a little kid, if you wanted to know. Here's another one. Jesus, he's playing in the mud. And he made with the clay 12 sparrows. And it was the Sabbath. There's Jesus violating the Sabbath, even as a little kid. And a child ran and told Joseph, saying, Behold, thy child is playing about the stream. And of clay he's made sparrows, which is not lawful. And when he heard this, he went and said to the child, Why dost thou do this, profaning the Sabbath? But Jesus gave him no answer, but looked upon the sparrows and said, Go away, fly and live and remember me. And as this word, they flew and went up into the air, and Joseph saw it and wondered. There's another story I won't read because it's too long. Jesus is playing with a bunch of his friends. They're playing on the roof. One of the boys shoves another kid off the roof, and he stumbles down, and he dies. And everybody else scatters away except Jesus, who's standing on the roof. And all the townspeople come running up, and there's Jesus, and they go, did you shove this boy? And Jesus kind of floats off the roof and comes down. And 
he says, ask him yourself. And he basically resurrects the boy. And the boy says, he stood up and addressed Jesus, my Lord, you did not throw me down, but you have brought me to life when I was dead. So on balance, as I'm reading this, of course in English, I don't read the original language. I kind of got the sense this one didn't belong in the New Testament. Now, is it impossible that Jesus could have done those things? Probably. <laughs> like, that's not the Jesus we have. It seems very, very different than the accounts of the reasons that Jesus used his power and the ways that he used it for a purpose and for science. So the early church fathers would note that and say, that clearly doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, by the way, it was written like, you know, in, in the 200 and something era, they believe. So a long time passed before suddenly all this new material about Jesus' infancy is discovered. Question? Yeah, not that I disagree with um, that conclusion from it, because I remember hearing about, like, that it was primarily just speculation about this whole time period, like, hey, maybe this is what Jesus was like, and sort of, like, trying to figure out, well, how did Jesus discover that he had power, or did he know to begin with, and how did he discover being moral, or was he always that, like, was he always perfect and never did anything wrong, like, I don't know, and so it's one of those things that we don't know what he was like as a kid. And so it's really not that I disagree with the result, um, resulting in that conclusion of like, yeah, this doesn't seem to fit with the rest of it. I mean, it's written much long after about like his childhood, but still. Like. Yeah, I think we could understand why they were written. I mean, I'm not saying I know the reason, but I could understand it. People wanted to know more about Jesus. He was an amazing figure. Maybe they wanted to write more about it. Maybe just people's mind was like, we could do anything with this story. This is amazing. I mean, this is a guy with ultimate superpowers. We could do whatever we want. I think people were hungry for this kind of thing. But by the way, this happened in Greek mythology. This happened in all sorts of places. Like, why wouldn't it happen in the context of our faith as well? That as this got further and further away, that people would just add these layers and layers that were completely made up. They were fanciful for the most part. Like if you're a Star Wars fan and you just can't handle that there's only been six movies in 27 years or whatever and you just go out and write a bunch of books that fill in all the details, right? But they're not the same, and most of us who've seen the movies know those are just not the same. Here's another one. This is a Gospel of Thomas, supposedly written by one of the disciples. Again, just to present to you that I think it's possible to know that this book doesn't belong. Here's some examples. Uh, and by the way, the Gospel of Thomas is a very Gnostic text, so everything's about you know secret knowledge and all this kind of stuff. So, for example... Jesus says, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. You won't die. Jesus said, those who seek should not stop seeking until they find. When they find, they will be disturbed. When they are disturbed, they will marvel, and they will reign over all, after having reigned over the rest. Jesus said, the person old in days won't hesitate to ask a little child seven days old about the place of life, and that person will live. Jesus said in another verse, lucky is the lion that the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion will still become human. I don't know, some of these are great. Like, <laughs> You know how Jesus said, do not think I've come to bring you know, peace but a sword? Here's a, here's a variation of that. Jesus said, I've cast fire upon the world, and look, I'm guarding it until it blazes. That's what Jesus came to earth to do, to like make sure it burned. Jesus said the dead are not alive, and the living will not die. 
During these days when you ate what is dead, you made it come alive. When you are in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became two. But when you become two, what will you do? I don't think it rhymed that well in the original languages, but I think you could have like Master P. Jesus doing like, like a little rap to that. It would be kind of cool. <laughs> Jesus said to them, if you're going to fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. And if you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. Some of you, I think, follow this. <laughs> His disciples asked him, when will you appear to us? When will we see you? Jesus said, when you strip down without being ashamed and take your clothes off and put them under your feet like little children and trample them, then you will see the Son of the Living One and you will not be afraid. Apparently the reason Jesus isn't coming back is we're not yet fully embracing nudity. <laughs> Jesus saying that he's the light of all things and he's everywhere, he says, split a piece of wood, I am there. Lift up a stone and you will find me. Last verse of the whole uh, Gospel of Thomas was written, I think, especially for Monique. It says, Simon Peter said to them, make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. I can see why that thing is <laughs> But let me point something out. In this same gospel, these words are said, Congratulations or blessings to the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, whoever does not hate his father and mother cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not hate his brothers and sisters and carry the crosses I do will not be worthy of me. Does that sound familiar? Interlaced in these places were some of Jesus' teachings. And that's the reason that people can say, I think we can see where some of this came from. Some of these teachings are floating around. They're just getting changed over time, or people are intentionally changing them. What's missing here? Well, what you're going to hear about in the coming weeks, what's missing potentially is the superintending of the Holy Spirit or the inspiration that might protect against that happening. Of course, if it's being intentionally done to twist the words of Jesus to make them match a Gnostic thought, then inspiration isn't even the issue. It's just being doctored. But you can see that intermingled in some of these Gospels as you read them are the same things. For example, Jesus said, The crop is huge, but the workers are few. So beg the harvest boss to dispatch workers to the field. That sounds exactly like what's in the Gospels. It's just a different translation, actually. Just translated differently. Come to me, for my yoke is comfortable and my lordship is gentle, and you will find rest for yourselves. That's also found in the Gospel of Thomas. And I'm going to read from one last one that's even harder sometimes to distinguish. I'll tell you that I went looking for the Gospel of Peter because I wanted to see what some of the early church fathers thought about. Why was the Gospel of Peter almost admitted? Some of them thought it was authoritative. And I was reading it, and I, I read it, and I thought, I don't see much wrong with this. For example, the description of the crucifixion. They bring two thieves, and Jesus is crucified between them. But here's what I missed the first time I read it. It says, but he kept silence as one feeling no pain. I didn't catch it at first until some commentator pointed out. Like there was a heresy at the time in the church. We call it docetism, which is basically this, again, another version of the dual nature. But in this case, the dual nature that we're struggling with is the incarnation. Like 
that maybe Jesus only appeared human or that he was possessed by the Spirit of God into a man. The divine nature and the human nature were never co-equal or co-existent in all the different forms that you could take this heresy on. So to them, it would be important that Jesus would feel no pain. He didn't suffer. So he goes on. It says the king of Israel, they laid the garments before him, and they divided them, they cast lots. Even one of the thieves on his side says, we've suffered evils, but this man has done nothing. I thought, yeah, I could see how this would take time. And some of the early church fathers didn't catch that distinction. And one of them actually reversed his opinion after he started to see how it was being used. So, for example, when he is finally crucified, instead of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my power, my power, thou hast forsaken me. And when he said so, he was taken up. You can see that the idea is that the spiritual Jesus can't be there to suffer. It's his power that's leaving and the human is being left behind saying, where is my power going? You're leaving me. There's this maybe the man on the cross, but the spirit is left. That's a harder one to dissect, and you can see that the church fathers had some time to work through it. Really having a proper theology of the incarnation was the difference between, at least at the time, and probably and to this day, orthodox teachings about what the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection meant versus some notion that, well, Actually, God was gone by the time that Jesus the man died, you know, or that his spirit had already departed or had left, or that God could not die or had nothing related to death because that can't touch him. And there's again that duality. You know, their spirit is so good, it's so pure, it can't have anything to do with carnal things like the flesh and death. So I'll be honest, like when I was reading this, I thought, hmm. Sounds pretty orthodox to me. But then I read it with that second lens and, and saw in many places, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's almost the same thing. In fact, it's very well done to the point that some commentators believe that this was just an independent witness who had written some of these things down and that later on this kept getting attitude embellished and of course led to a whole dustist kind of school of thought that used this book more exclusively. As Jeremy pointed out, some of the early church fathers cited to it. And some believed for a time that it might be authoritative. And then later looked at it with different lens. Okay? What does all this mean? This subject has been so hard for us, I think, as a group, because it's very dry to actually investigate the answer to the question that many of us have. Tonight's questions were pretty limited. And I think that I would just take away a couple of things from it. I know they're generalizations. Unless you want to read the whole book, which I recommend you do, or you want to look at all of those things. Now, they don't have text of all of those things, but they have text of like 20 or 30 of them. So if you want to look at the actual text of some of those things, just go to earlychristianwritings.com and click on Apocrypha. And they have like a list of some of them, and they have different translations done by different people. They actually have some commentaries on them in the history of how we discovered them. So if you can't get enough in here, like you really want to dig deeper, go to earlychristianwritings.com and just look at some of the earlier writings and what they were. But the two points I think we could take away tonight are, I don't believe there was much dispute over what the Gospels, the Pauline Epistles, and Acts, and that's where we get most of our stuff. I also don't think that there was this view that the canon was developed much, much later. I think over time it was pretty much known, and it was pretty clear 
which books they were going to not include and why. I didn't bring in all the other ones I read. Some of them are interesting historical books. One of them goes into the history of Mary and her mom, Anna and Joachim, and how they had Mary, and how Mary was as a little girl. And it tries to explain why, of all the women in the world, God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus. Just like they tried to do the infancy gospels, try to explain what was Jesus like as a child, there's a whole gospel written kind of about, they call it the protoevangelium of James. Supposedly James wrote this to kind of tell us what happens before the gospels and how Mary came to be Mary. You can read it if you want. Some of it has been taken in the tradition of the church because I know that some of the churches believe some of those stories. But I think for us, it just shows you there's a richness of the tradition, but when it comes down to the actual theology of it, I think we're pretty well camped. All right, any last questions before we close? Let me close this up in prayer. Lord, I confess that I'm kind of drained tonight. And there's a part of me that's tempted to think maybe we should just accept this book on faith and just accept it and move on to do things in our lives. And Lord, I only hesitate to do that because the questions that we receive persist. And Lord, we may head of the area where the questions are harder to answer. But I pray that you just honor our time. Spirit, just as you superintended the writing of these things, may you just guide us. May you give us a new freshness. Even in the midst of all this history, all these dry doctrines, all these things that happened in the past, Lord, the result is your living word. And we take that for granted. So I pray tonight, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes into your word and a fresh appreciation for it, even in the midst of all of these things, that we would learn from that and grow, that your word would be something that ignites a fire in our hearts, not just something that we study. pray this in your name. Amen.